Hey, y'all. Sam Sanders here. These days, I feel like I can't make sense of the news until I've talked it out with my friends. So I made a new show where we do that every week. It's called It's Been a Minute. That's my way of saying let's catch up. Find It's Been a Minute now on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcast. Thanks. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. You know the singer Beth Ditto, right? She used to front the band The Gossip, also called Gossip. She's got a new solo album out. She lives in Portland right now. She grew up in Searcy, Arkansas, pretty small town, just about an hour outside Little Rock. There was no MTV, just a handful of punk rock shows. After high school, she did the thing a lot of punk kids do. She packed everything up and moved to a cooler, bigger city. For Beth, that city was Olympia, Washington, a place that couldn't be more different than Searcy. You know, listen, you take that bus downtown, you go to the Capitol Theater, you go to Homo Agogo. There's this kissing booths. I mean, there were like queer kissing booths where you could pay a dollar to kiss another girl. That was my first kiss. That's the first time I kissed a girl. I paid a dollar. So cheap. <laughs> it's bullseye. <laughs> Coming up, I'll talk with Beth about her new solo record, her time spent fronting the band The Gossip, and how when you're a kid setting up punk shows in a little town in Arkansas, there really isn't such a thing as clicks. I didn't realize that there was a division of like of different in subgenres of punk rockers and indie rockers and hipsters and posers and scenesters. Hippies didn't hang out with punks and punks didn't hang out with heshers. Because it wasn't like that. Because if we didn't hang out with each other, we would be alone. Then I'll talk with Ernest Dickerson. It's a guy who's had a long, fascinating career in filmmaking. He's a director with a ton of movie and TV credits to his name. He also handled the cinematography for some of Spike Lee's best movies. He actually met Spike at NYU. They studied film there. They were part of a pretty small group of black students at this school. Even in a progressive place like New York, being black at NYU wasn't easy. There were a couple of black students that had been there for a couple of years before we got there. And, and <laughs> when they came up, they were basically, don't, don't embarrass us, okay? You know, this, you know, you, you, this is a work school. You've got to come here and work. You don't, this is not a party school. Finally, I'm going to do an outshot about Car Talk, the best public radio show ever. And I know all those Calling All Pets fans out there are like, oh, snap, shots fired. We'll see. It's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My first guest this week is Beth Ditto. She's a singer and a songwriter. She was born and raised in Searcy, Arkansas. She moved to Washington State out of high school, and she made a name for herself as the singer in The Gossip. The band first broke through in the early 2000s coming up with dance punk groups like The Rapture, LCD Sound System, and Liars. But while those bands were arty, dark, and a little self-serious, the gossip were fun. They were proudly queer. And seriously, Beth Ditto can sing. Because we're standing in the way of control. We will live our lives. 
The gossip broke up last year, and in the wake of all of that, Beth Ditto has her first solo album out. It's called Fake Sugar. The album's a departure from the gossip sound, more of a pop record. But Beth's voice has only grown in range and power. Like, now, instead of sounding sort of like, uh, let's say, Donna Summer, you can hear some Stevie Nicks and maybe even some Tina Turner. Here's a single from the new album. It's called Fire. If you want my, want my love. Fire. Fire. Bless my soul, that's the way it is. Bless my soul, I can't resist. Beth Ditto, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you very much. I'm really happy to be here. How old were you when you moved from your hometown to Olympia, Washington? Oh, look at you. You know. You know the real place. Um, I was 18 years old. I graduated. I turned 18 in February of 99. I graduated in May of 99, and I moved in June of 99. Did you go to go to school or did you go to not go to school? I went to follow my friends. They were they moved up there because one of my friends went to school um who we started gossip together. But she moved to go to Evergreen and so I looked around and all of my weirdo friends were gone and so I just moved up there to be with them. Um no, I never went to school. Mm-mm. I barely graduated high school, let alone more of that. And and also, like, left entirely up to my own devices. I, I would never... I would have just gotten a lot of debt and a whole lot of nothing. <laughs> you mean, if you had you gone to school? Yeah. Yeah. What was the scene like in your hometown? Hilarious. Where, where was it? Hilarious. I grew up in Judsonia, which is just outside of Searcy, which is about... Searcy's when you were, like... When you, it was Saturday morning, you'd be like, your mom would be like, we're going to town. You went to Cersei. That's where you got groceries and stuff. So um, that's where the Walmart was. Um, so that's where um, I met Kathy and Nathan and Jerry and a few other kids, too. Um, but that's who we, I moved to Olympia with. So, yeah. So, you know, we had our own little scene there. And, like, there weren't that many of us. Um, we were all really different. We all were into different things. I think they were much cooler than me. They were also older than me. But, you know, Kathy was three years older than me. Nathan was two. Jerry was one year older, which is why I moved after. But um, so, I, you know, I just... I wasn't as cool as they were, so I was listening to old music and was into different things on my own, like even feminism and things like that. Like, I hadn't really um, gotten into Riot Girl deeply yet when I'd met them at all. Like, it was something I'd heard passed around, but it wasn't anything I knew a lot about. I was more, like, listening to, like, Mama Cass and Nina Simone and, um, you know, just Tori Amos was a big one for me. I listened to a lot of Melanie, and, you know, that's pretty much where... That's that's where my music nerdiness came from, was old music. So I was a natural weirdo, and they were natural weirdos. And the ideas that we even... The, the notion we even met each other is really incredible. I mean, we looked so ridiculous. Like, I remember my friend Jerry cutting off his pant legs and then wearing tube socks with the shorts that he'd made, but then, like, safety pinning the pant legs to his sleeves. So, like... 
and then wearing um, taking apart computers and wearing this the the what is it called the the board the um circuit board the circuit board yeah. on his shirt because he was such a cyber techie kid like pre-internet i read the first time i saw the internet it was at his house actually <laughs> in the 90s and it was the slowest most ridiculous dot matrix pixelated thing i've ever seen like it took Beth, like you're just des- hours. you're describing like a second grader building a robot you're not describing a high schooler yeah. designing fashion no that was what it was and that's why it was so amazing it was so innocent and like really untouched i mean because the beauty was is that we did we were second graders if you had gone to those shows that we were playing for each other like it was so different from anything else and it was it was unpretentious if everyone was just having fun hippies were hanging out like we when i i didn't realize that there was a division of like of different in subgenres of punk rockers and indie rockers and hipsters and posers and scenesters hippies didn't hang out with punks and punks didn't hang out with heshers because it wasn't like that because if we didn't hang out with each other we would be alone so the beauty was like we didn't and also MTV wasn't a thing unless you had a satellite dish because our cable company was too Christian to carry it. You couldn't get it. And so we were really cut off in this way that what we had, we envisioned what we thought a scene would be. So it was just the most in some ways, like in retrospect, I remember Nathan and I talking about it, how it was so avant garde, like it was just so ridiculously made up and hilarious, like it was just really it was really great and innocent it was so fun what was it like for you when you had to adjust to living on the the mean streets of olympia washington <laughs> i mean everyone is nice you know i think in the in their own way it's definitely not southern nice but that was me being very naive you know my wife still says she's always like you are so naive and i'm like i don't really feel naive but i also just I I think it was amazing. Honestly, it was incredible. Like I don't I'm not talk, I'm not throwing it under the bus. Speaking of buses, there were city buses and I'd never seen that before. I'd never been on a city bus. I'd never gone to I'd never lived in a town with a mall. I you know, when I was a kid, the mall was somewhere you went once a year, maybe. You know, and your school took you on a field trip. It was just like you 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 know, you're, if you were really lucky, your parents gave you 20 bucks and you could go to the Spencer's and get a T-shirt with a Mr. Potato Head on it. Like, you know, I, like I don't mean to interrupt, Beth, but you went on a school you. field trip to the mall? Well, we would go to different places in Little Rock, you know, and then we would go to the mall for lunch and then we would eat at the food court and then we could shop for about an hour. Got it. <laughs> I love that is a strange use of the academic calendar. <laughs> But if you're going to the zoo and then you're stopping in for lunch, I get that. Yeah. Well, also, I mean, you think about it, it's like, sure, it's like maybe it's not like academic, but there's some kids, you know, where we're from that would never have gotten to go had it not been for that. And if you think about that in in its own way, like culturally, that's really important. Like they would never have seen, except for maybe the the hospital at that time, maybe one of the banks and even been in a, in a place with an elevator. And like that's or an escalator or anything is and that in its own way, that's pretty important, too. So it just depends on how you look at it. I was in remedial math in eighth and ninth grade. And I swear to you, they took the kids that were in special ed and remedial classes and they would take us every year, just us, to tour the prisons. That's not a joke. And so that you could see what your life would turn out if you didn't smarten up or straighten up or, like, get your life together. So did you have a vision of what your life was going to be at all? I, You know what's crazy is I tried—and this just dawned on me when you asked me that question. 
I tried as hard as I could to be to have a decision made for me because I didn't have one. Like I really, I'm so grateful for my high school boyfriend for not knocking me up because there were times when I was like, I have, you have to get me pregnant because I didn't want to come out of the closet. I didn't want to make that life decision. I wanted it to be made for me. I wanted to have to live for somebody else. And what a nightmare sentence that would have been. And I feel like there are a lot of people around there that would have totally done that. Did you, at the time when you were a teenager, did you know that you were a lesbian? Yeah, definitely. And so did he, which is funny. I really had, you know, (laughs) I put him through the rinker. I was always like, I think I'm gay. I need to break up with you. But we were together for three years. I mean, I sent him an email a long time ago that was like, you know, I just want to say thank you. You were the best boyfriend a high school lesbian could have had. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Beth Ditto. For years, she fronted the band Gossip. Her solo debut, Fake Sugar, is out now. What was it like for you when you got to Olympia? And not only were there uh, teams of rock and rollers, but there were like specific lesbian teams as well. Oh, man. I, I learned so much. There was so much about my own sexuality and gender that I didn't even know. I mean, I was 18 and like off the turnip truck. Like, I still believed in God. I mean, I was still under that, under the thumb of the Bible Belt. I was still living in, in that, you know, fear. So, like, just to meet other people who were queer and like they had, you know, in different queer identities and genders and like the fluidity of all of that, like it changed my life. It was so incredible. Like it was like the best. It was like I do, you know, the thing about Olympia, I I lived there for four years and then I moved to Portland. The thing about Olympia that was so incredible is that some people went to go to school and they went to Evergreen and they went for their four years. Some people didn't finish or whatever. Some people are still there. But for me, it was four years of college of like complete life experience where I learned so much about, you know, it was like a queer, it was a queer women's study in its in itself. Like I learned so many things and like it's another thing I'm really grateful for. I don't, it's the other thing. It's just like, if like, you know, I knew about grunge and stuff like that. I knew about Seattle and I was obsessed with it, of course, but I, re- I didn't know about Olympia. And like, if I'd have been a little teenager, I'd, I'd, I would have been like, what? That's crazy. It was, I, I learned so much. I mean, you know, listen, you take that bus downtown, you go to the Capitol Theater, you go to Homo Agogo. There's there's kissing booths. I mean, there were like queer kissing booths where you could pay a dollar to kiss another girl. That was my first kiss. That's the first time I kissed a girl. I paid a dollar. So cheap. <laughs> that is a bargain. That is a steal, my friend. Good investment. Yeah, great investment. Was there a moment, Beth? I mean, I, I talked to um, I, I talked to Corin Tucker of Slater Kinney, and yeah. she described to me when she saw Kathleen Hanna perform mm. for the first time uh, 
who was in uh, Bikini Kill and Le Tigre, that it was so so thrilling to her to see that a woman could do that. Um, and it was so just what she had never known that was exactly what she wanted to do and be that it felt like, you know, it was a real Unchain the Beast moment. Mm, mm. Did you ever have a moment when you were starting the gossip with your friend from back home, mm-hmm. uh, Nathan, who's known in the band as Brace Payne? And also Kathy, to remember, too. Yeah. She She was from back home, too. So did you guys ever... Like, was there a moment when you acknowledged, when you saw what you wanted and maybe even felt like you could do it? I think Nathan probably saw it more than we did. And no. (laughs) I remember, I mean, later you do when you realize, oh, you actually have a thing and people are actually coming to see you on tour and like you're, you're, you're on tour period. Like I remember that moment. It was, and I remember being like, I want to do this for a living. I, if I can, I never thought about doing it for a living. I never thought about being a musician. I mean, watching Slater Kenny was, I have to say also that I am forever in their debt. They took us on tour and gave us everything. We weren't hip enough to like punk tours that we even knew that you needed a, to like, I can't even tell you what we didn't know. It, we were just scatterbrained crazy. Like, we were just like, our friend was like, we'll drive you. We're like, okay. We didn't even think, hey, maybe you should hire her as a roadie. We just like saw her as a driver. We would just show up and be like, can we borrow your amp? Like, we never even thought, we didn't know what a sound check was. I didn't know what monitors were. Like, I didn't, they, I had no idea. And that went on for years. I didn't know. It was way after a Slater Kenny tour, but they really, like, if we needed anything, I mean, Carrie would let us sleep in the floor in her room, all of us, like, in her, like, hotel rooms. Like, she didn't and have to do And this is when, that. I mean, by the time you were touring with them, they were legitimate rock stars. They oh, were... yeah. This was All Hands on the Bad One tour. This is, like, so, like, I had been listening to them at home. But here's the other thing is, like, I had no idea. The other thing is, like, I saw them as they were rock stars to me, but nobody I knew knew who they were growing up. Because it wasn't that kind of scene. It wasn't It wasn't that connected. So we were very, it was a very small group of people. But when I realized, I guess, just how big they were, I was like, whoa, baby, whoops. <laughs> so it was kind of a blessing that I didn't know. It's just a whirlwind. But yeah, at this time, they were already, they were, I mean, the first time we ever played San Francisco was the Fillmore, and it was with them. I mean, there was a moment when... Um, I had decided with my girlfriend I was going to go back to Arkansas because I could go to beauty school for free with financial aid uh, because I was still technically a resident there, blah, blah, blah. And my first girlfriend and I were going to go back and um, go to beauty school for really cheap and live with my sister and blah, blah, blah. And um, I had told this to Kathy, who was playing drums and gossip, and she had told this to Carrie. And we were at the Crystal Ballroom, and we were still opening for them. And Carrie asked the crowd— in the middle of their set, she was like, who here thinks that Beth should go back to Arkansas and become a hairdresser? And everybody booed. And then, um, still to this moment, it chokes me up. And then after that, she was like, who here thinks, raise your hand if you think Beth should stay here and pursue her rock and roll career. And everybody cheered and raised their hand. And I remember Kathy looked at me and she hugged me really tight. And then Carrie looked at me and I was just like, and, and after that, I was just like, oh. 
this, this people believe in me, you know. I think that was a thing with Slater Kenny too, and and all of them is like kindness wasn't always a punk thing either. Um, even though it's like sisterly and feminist, there's a warmth that is really necessary for me that was missing. And Slater Kenny really showed us that warmth. So I'm always grateful to them. It, it actually kind of tears me up because to me that was the most empowering moment of sisterhood, one of them that I had experienced my entire career of Olympia career. We've got more of my interview with Beth Ditto after a break. Still ahead, Beth talks about her new solo album and how recording it gave her a chance to look back on her childhood and her hometown in a different way. She says that up until now, nostalgia hasn't really been her thing. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. We'd like to say a quick thank you and share a message from one of our sponsors, Stoke Cold Brew Coffee. The folks at Stoke are obsessive about building bold and smooth taste, finding the right beans, finding the right grind, brewing at cool temperatures for at least 10 hours to keep out those incorrect flavor notes. Slow brewed, just like good ideas. Find it in the refrigerated juice section. Stoke Cold Brew Coffee. Look at you go. Hey, it's Guy Raz here. If you love this podcast, you might also love the TED Radio Hour. It's a show about what it means to be a human. We grieve, we experience joy, sadness, love, and jealousy. We can be cruel and empathetic. We have the capacity to imagine the future and the past. And at a time when it seems we're so divided, the TED Radio Hour explores what makes us unique among all species. Find it on Apple Podcasts, the NPR One app, or however you get your podcasts. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to the singer Beth Ditto. For over 15 years, she sang in the rock band Gossip. Now she's just released Fake Sugar, her first ever solo album. When your friend Nathan, who had co-founded The Gossip with you, Mm -hmm. moved back home to uh, live on the farm that he grew up in, Mm. and you ultimately decided to break up the band um, Mm. sort of by... By mutual acclamation. Mm. Did you feel confident that you could make music on your own without this guy who had been like your big brother forever? No. I didn't feel... I think had I set out to make a solo record in the first place, like if I was like, baby, I'm going solo, it would have been different. But I think because I was already writing for the gossip record anyway, and there were already songs that just weren't gossip songs. And I would, I was like, well, why would I throw these away? I think I knew that I had songs already. Now, had I made a decision to do it by myself without songs, I don't know what would have happened. But I have this thing, and you know, I always say that I'm at the musician's mercy. Like, I'm at the guitar player's mercy. I'm only as good as the player that I'm with. Or the person that's making the music because I can't read music. I can't play it. I can't, I can hum it. You know, I can say, maybe can you try to play it like this or give my ideas and try to communicate them, but I can't tell you what to do. I don't really know the language. So, um, 
I'm only as good as the person that I'm with. And so that's frightening. But at that point, I'd already had things. You know, I'd already had music. And I think because I was writing for gossip, it gave me... I always say that I think gossip was over two years before it was over. I think when Nathan moved back, it was over. The last show I think that we played together was the night before my wedding. I think that was, that. well, yeah, that was four years ago. So um, not the night before my wedding, but the night before I left for the, the trip. And, um, yeah, so I think it was over a long time ago. It, it must have, Beth, been scary to kind of lose him to the thing that had taken the two of you into the, you know, down the path of starting a band in the first place, that, that the two of you had yeah. had left town together, so, so to speak. And well, he taught that me had everything. Your, yeah, and then to have him go back, and I understand he 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 was born again, and it's just a he he chose to go back to the life that mm. the two of you had agreed to Brand leave fun. when you were teenagers. Not only that, but that gave us fuel to do what we did. Like our escape, I think, from Arkansas and our absolute just like need for distance and something else drove us to do everything that we did. And when you think about like that is now, you know, the potential that he could turn into that person. And I don't think he will. He's not a homophobic, you know, sexist, crazy person. And I like to call him the Billy Zoom of gossip. That's what I always called him before, you know, gossip. Um, <laughs> while we were still on tour and stuff and he was finding God, I was like, you, you're just such a little evangelist. Like, because he is very charismatic. The thing about Nathan is that he's a he's a damn genius. He's the funniest person I've ever met. Um, the longest relationship I ever had. The longest job I ever had. The longest thing, the longest project I ever did was with him. I've never been anywhere in the world with more people, with any, with anyone else as many, with, you know what I mean? Like, um, we saw everything together. Everything. I mean, like, you know, we went from squats to four seasons. And like, that's... Um, so real. And the thing is, is that is sad. Going out and doing whatever by myself, like making music, playing shows, none of that is sad or difficult. None of it. And, you know, it, it's not, I don't feel like the naif, like the breaking up was the hardest thing. Um, you know, Kathy, when we decided, to, like, I mean, we kicked Kathy out of the band when Hannah came along. That was the hardest thing I ever had to do with gossip until Nathan left. And, you know, people are like, oh, I, you know, people are like, Beth, you left the gossip. And I was like, no, it just stopped. And it stopped a long time ago. It's like when you're in a marriage or in a romantic relationship, you really know, you know it's over, but no one's saying it. It was like that. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Beth Ditto. Her debut solo album, Fake Sugar, is out now. Your solo album, as it turned out, kind of feels like it's got a lot of home in it. Yeah, that's the thing. It's like, I think 
I used my 20s and my late teens and gossip, and I used, we used all of that, you know, coming out of the closet, all of that excitement, being surrounded by feminists and being surrounded by music and going to a show, whether it be a good show or a bad show, you know, bad bands happen to good people, good bands happen to bad people. It's just like, whatever it was, it's like you had all of that. Like, you know, Olympia to some people doesn't seem like a very big thing. But for me, it was a huge, I'd never been lived in a town that big. I'd never been exposed to that much stuff. So like, we had all this great stuff. And like, we used like our childhood and our past and we used them to like fuel and motivate our youth. And all of the paths that we took and all of the great things that happened to us and all the great people that we met. And I feel like now I'm using it to fuel nostalgia. And, like, I'm kind of seeing it through a soft focus lens, especially, like, I lost my dad in 2011. So, like, you start to realize that all of these bad memories that you had, like, I think if he was still living, you still see them as existing. And, you know, they're, they're, they're memories that that are still connected to these feelings because this person is still living. They're still connected to, they're still raw. They're still alive. But when I think when my dad died, enough time had gone by that I started to look at things fondly, even the weird little things where you're like, you know, my dad had really, really bad arthritis and that's what killed him. But like he had rheumatoid arthritis so bad that his hands, um, he couldn't, slap us in the head because he'd knock us in the head like if we said something like if I cussed on accident or something I remember my sister was like I dare you to do Yankee Doodle with all F's well when you say stuck a feather in his hat with an F guess what he did with that feather in his hat so I said that in front of my dad and he would he would try to like backhand you a little bit but instead of backhanding you like his hand was so stiff it didn't really work so it was just a thud it was just like pooch so when that when his hand stopped to be even being got even less like um you know he could stop using them even less and they were more um how do you say that um he couldn't use them but anyway they were like you want to say like um what is it called floppy i don't know but when they when he couldn't he would thump you instead and so <laughs> so like when you would get in trouble because he couldn't hold the belt to whoop you and he couldn't give you he couldn't backhand you um, he's very gentle, my dad, but he, for real, but he could only thump you. And like, when you look at that in retrospect, it sounds, you're like, what are you talking about? Whoopings and five across the eyes. But for, you know, when I talk about that with my siblings now, we laugh so hard at how funny that is. Not that dad had arthritis, but there's the, the shock of the thump. Cause you never saw it coming. Yeah. When you look back on that kind of stuff, it's like, you when someone's alive you 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 take that memory for granted and when they're gone you see it as this really whimsical funny little memory that you're gonna that those are and those are the things and that's all you're ever gonna have of that person there's not gonna be any new memories so my dad used to take me to honky tonks you know and we used to go to the VFW because grew up in a dry county, so it was like the only place that you could get booze, and you had to be a member, of course. And but my brother was who was fourteen, and my other and my cousin played boogie woogie piano, and like would play Jerry Lee Lewis and like country music and Little Richard, and my brother played drums for him, and 
my dad would do sound for them and we would my dad would take us on his weekends to have us and we would go honky tonking and two stepping and dad you know take us he would get all dressed up which meant that he would put on his country western belt and a and a vest that had his name tag on it that just said homer but um those memories were so when i think about music and after all these years of answering interviews about music and like what what people were listening to and what i grew up with and country music and soul music and blues music and all of that stuff, gospel music. I I didn't think about it until he was gone how instrumental that was in, in me being a singer. So this record really, I, I wanted to make maybe a record that Dad would like. I mean, he was always really proud and, like, really into <laughs> So funny, his doctor... He was just really, you know, he didn't see anybody else. He saw his wife, and he'd see us every once in a while. He only saw me once a year, if that. And he was always really proud to brag to his doctors and the nurses that his daughter was a singer. Beth, we're <laughs> we're plumb out of time, but I'm you so grateful. Say. I'm so grateful to you for coming on Bullseye. I really enjoyed getting to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. Ditto, everybody. Make sure to give her a new record a listen. It's called Fake Sugar. It's out now. She's also got a bunch of tour dates coming up. Just head over to the Bullseye page on MaximumFun.org for more information. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My next guest is the director, Ernest Dickerson. Dickerson started working straight out of film school. As a cinematographer. He worked a lot with his classmate, Spike Lee. He DP'd on Do the Right Thing, She's Gotta Have It, and Malcolm X, among other movies. He's also got a ton of TV credits to his name. He's directed The Walking Dead, Law and & Order, and a few of the best episodes of The Wire. 25 years ago, Ernest directed and co-wrote his first-ever feature-length movie. It's called Juice. Juice was a box office and critical success. It also helped kick off the acting careers of people like Omar Epps, Queen Latifah, Khalil Khan, and maybe most notably, Tupac Shakur. To celebrate its 25th anniversary, Juice is getting a long-awaited re-release on Blu-ray. Juice is sort of a modern film noir that presents itself at first as a coming-of-age story. It's about four teenagers growing up in Harlem, and at the beginning, they're friends who ditch school together, maybe shoplift every now and then, get harassed by the cops, have little spats with a local gang. But as the movie progresses, Juice raises the stakes at every turn. Things get more and more complicated and nuanced as violence seeps into the situation. Let's take a listen to a scene from Juice. This is early on in the movie. It's kind of a turning point. The four main characters are hanging out in an apartment watching TV. Earlier on, they ran into a friend as he was about to rob a bar. Then, in this scene, they hear on the news that he got killed by cops while he was doing it. Bishop, played by Tupac, thinks it's a sign that he and his crew aren't getting the respect they deserve. And unless they go hard, they never will. We run from the cops. 
We run from Rodimaz. We run from security guards. We run from old man quills in the store when he come with that bull gun. All we do is run. Feel like I'm on the goddamn track team. I'm serious. What's the matter, Ryan? Nothing to say? That's because you know I'm right. In your heart, you know I'm right. Yo, big man, if you want respect, you gotta earn it. You damn right. You gotta be ready to go down, stand up, and die for that like Blizzard did if you want some juice. Ernest Dickerson, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. So, did you always aspire to be a filmmaker? It took me a while to figure it out. I was always interested in movies from way back, I mean, since elementary school. Movies were always a part of my house, movies and and good jazz. You know, Saturdays and Sundays, a bunch of us would go to the movies, and we always loved adventure films and stuff like that, horror films, you know, scary movies, movies like The Tingler, you know, The Great Escape, really good adventure films. So I always loved movies, Um, started thinking seriously about it later on, but I was always interested in the craft. Started out being interested in visual effects. Because I was a big Ray Harryhausen fan. And, you know, seeing a lot of fantasy films and, and horror films and science fiction films, I was always interested in the visual effects. You were, you basically, you're saying you were a nerd. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Back in the 60s when it wasn't so, so fashionable to be <laughs> one. <laughs> so what, what did being interested in the effects mean? I mean, were you at home trying to make your own squibs? Um, I did do some effects, you know, with some uh, firecrackers. I remember my my favorite show at that time was uh, The Man from Uncle, and they always had this thing where they would take out a lock with uh, something they put in the lock, and then sparks would just come out. So I used to do that by taking firecrackers and tearing them in half and putting them in in locks or stuff, you know, and, and seeing that we would play with that. I became a little bit of a pyromaniac in the bathtub. I would take lighter fluid, and I would just like squirt patterns in there and just light it and see it all just all just light up. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with the director and cinematographer Ernest Dickerson. You went to film school. You got a master's degree in film. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if there was a point in your life where you had to give yourself permission or maybe even to ask your parents for permission, depending on where you were at with your parents to not do the job like not be a not have not pursue a practical career but rather pursue a profoundly impractical career. Well, the thing is I graduated after I graduated I got my degree in architecture. I had a part-time job at uh, Howard Medical School and the hospital doing medical photography. What is medical photography? Uh surgery. Um I was in surgery sometimes two to three times a week. Um, and so were you just like taking pictures of people's boils? Um, that I, what you've described <laughs> to me in a very flat tone sounds like the grossest thing ever to me. It at first it was, you know. I mean, you know, they they gave me a you know a chance to kind of get used to things. They wouldn't let me take a photograph for a couple of months, you know, but they let me develop the film. You know, they say there's nothing more magical than that moment. When you pull that piece of photographic paper out of the chemicals and you see that boil reveal itself. (laughs) I went to my girlfriend after the first couple of times I did it because I'm shooting over the surgeon's shoulder and he's taking this person's leg off and, and they're wrapping it in a plastic bag and putting it in the corner. 
so it can go to pathology. And I'm still shooting them cleaning up the mess and, you know, you know, putting the flap of skin over the bone. And, you know, but my eye keeps going to like that leg that's sitting over in the corner. It's one of my girlfriend's house that night. I said, oh, God, I got to I got to smoke a joint. (laughs) (laughs) Did you feel like you had to have or had a special seriousness because you were black? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, because, I mean, that was uh, some of the first stuff that Spike and I talked about because we met first day. Spike Lee. Yeah. There weren't too many African-Americans or Africans. There weren't too many black folks in the class there. They definitely didn't take us seriously. I mean, even even some black students, there were a couple of black students that had been there for a couple of years before we got there. And and <laughs> when they came up, they were basically, well, don't don't embarrass us. OK, you know, this, you know, you, you this is a work school. You got to come here and work. You don't. This is not a party school. And, you know, Spike and I looked at each other, this is bull- you know, we always worked our asses off. That's why we're in graduate school Exactly, right now. <laughs> you know. We've got more of my conversation with Ernest Dickerson in a minute. After a break, we'll talk about Juice, which is a huge hit movie that because he wanted his creative control, he made for practically nothing. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and this message comes from 2020, where creatives get inspiring, authentic stock photos. Unlike traditional staged stock photos, 2020 has millions of real-world images your audience will actually engage with, all under a simple royalty-free license. Today, 2020 is offering Bullseye listeners a seven-day free trial of five photos. Monthly subscription begins after seven days. To start your trial, go to twenty20.com slash bullseye. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We'll get back to my conversation with Ernest Dickerson. But before we do that, Pop Rocket time. Pop Rocket, if you don't know, our sister show here at MaximumFun.org, our chattier sister show. When you listen to Pop Rocket every week, a brilliant, hilarious panel looks at why we love what we love in pop culture. A bunch of heavy hitters, uh, the novelist and entertainment writer Margaret Wappler, pop culture scholar Karen Tongson from the University of Southern California, and the great social media strategist Winter Mitchell. It's hosted by our friend Guy Branham. He's a comedian. He hosts Talk Show, The Game Show on True TV, one of the funniest shows on TV. Hey, Guy, buddy, what's popping on Pop Rocket this week? Hey, Jesse, in honor of Independence Day, we will be celebrating by honoring the works of fiercely independent artists like Beyonce, Tina Turner, and maybe even Salman Rushdie, people who declared their independence through art. Yeah, that's what's up. I like Tina Turner talk. Pop Rocket, get it wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Ernest Dickerson. Ernest is a cinematographer and a director. He's worked on nearly 100 movies and TV shows, including Do the Right Thing, Malcolm X, and The Wire, plus, you know, Crush Groove. His directorial debut, Juice, is celebrating its 25th anniversary this year. You DP'd uh, the first few films that your film school classmate Spike Lee made, mm-hmm. um, including some of his greatest films. I, I want to play a scene from one of those. I, I'm going to play a scene from Do the Right Thing. It was one of my favorite movies. Okay. 
if folks haven't seen it, it's just sort of a slice of life, day in the life of this block in this neighborhood in Bed-Stuy in Brooklyn. In this scene that we're about to hear, uh, a guy called Buggin' Out is at the pizzeria having some pizza. The pizzeria is Italian-owned. Buggin' Out is black. They have a wall of fame in the pizzeria. There's no black folks in the wall of, in the wall of fame. Hey, hey, Sal, how come you got no brothers on the wall here? You want brothers on the wall? Get your own place. You can do what you want to do. You can put your brothers and uncles and nieces and nephews, your stepfather, stepmother, whoever you want. You see? But this is my pizzeria. American Italians on the wall only. Yeah, that might be fine, Sal, but uh, you, you own this. Rarely do I see any American Italians eating in here. All I see is black folks. So since we spend much money here, we do have some set. You looking for trouble? Are you a troublemaker? Is that what you are? You making trouble? Yeah, I'm a troublemaker. I'm making trouble. Yeah. It's one of the most beautiful movies that I've ever seen. Oh, thank you. You know, it kind of radiates the color of 1989, like the aesthetics of the clothes are so central to it. Mm-hmm. Those kind of bold color block clothes that people were rocking in 1989 are such an essential part of this kind of this vision of this block. What did you talk to Spike Lee about in terms of what this movie was going to look like? Well, um, that process started uh, months earlier he and I were on a plane flying from New York to L.A. to look at the answer print for school days. And um, and he started writing. Well, he had been writing something that at that time was called Heat Wave. And he was telling me, yo, man, I'm writing this film. Uh, it's set on the hottest day of the summer. Figure out how we can get the audience to feel the heat of the summer. And I started thinking first about color because color photography to me had always been a big thing, especially, you know, uh, color films where the color was used in ways to help tell the story. It was it was an article in Playboy that I read. Uh, it was actually an interview with John Houston in Playboy where he talked about the painterly use of the visuals in his films, how he felt that every film should have its own palette, its own look, its own approach to color. And so I decided that the best way to do this was to limit the color scale to mostly yellows, reds, you know, earth tones, really minimize or stay away from blues and greens, which which have a calming effect. Psych- psychological use of color, uh, was something I started like really uh, studying, noticing that you know on submarines the color scheme inside submarines are usually blues and greens and and colors that actually have a tendency to to relax you and, and calm you down. Same with hospitals and psych wards, famously, yeah. As opposed to reds and yellows. You know, red actually causes the heart rate to increase. You know, I just felt the best way to do that was to limit the color scale to those warmer colors. And the great thing that that Spike did, they gave me four weeks of paid pre-production. So I had a a chance to come in and, and lay down some ground rules that the problem was that this was all going to be taking place on one day. We were going to be shooting for eight weeks. How am I going to make eight weeks look like one day where we're outside a lot and and almost every shot we're seeing the entire block or we're seeing a large part of the block? And so I, I, I just laid down the ground rule. Whatever street we select for this, it has to run north and south. 
And my rationale was that as the sun rises in the east and sets in the west, a street that runs north and south, one side of the street is always going to be shaded. It's easy for me to make a cloudy day look like the shaded, look like the shaded side of the street, which saved my butt because we had almost nothing but rain for the first two weeks of shooting. The movie culminates in, spoiler alert, for this movie that came out in 1989 that you should have seen by now and which you will not lose out on just by knowing how it ends. It culminates in a riot. Mm. And it is the climax of the film. Mm. It's not about dialogue. How did you and Spike Lee design what that would look like? Honestly, uh, Spike was pulling it all together, pulling the film together. And uh, his hands were full, and he asked me to design the sequence. Um, so I worked with a storyboard artist. That was Spike trusting me, you know, because he didn't have time, and he needed somebody to concentrate on that. So that was the first of two instances where he let me design key scenes in a film. Let's take a listen to that scene from Do the Right Thing. When you got the chance to direct your first film, was it something that came to you or something that you've been working on for years and years? It was actually something that uh, me and a friend of mine uh, co-wrote uh, not long after I got out of NYU, uh, before, before my career as a cinematographer took off. And after, I think, my first films, I, I, I tried to take it out. We, we tried to take it around. And see if anybody could be interested in the script. It was it was called Juice at that time. It was basically the story that eventually got made. Uh, some of the characters changed. Queen Latifah's character in the script was originally Africa Bambata. So um, we just got rejected every place we got. We every place we went. So it just sat on the shelf. We said, "I oh, forget about it." My career as a DP was taken off. Uh, Gerard's career as a playwright was was working and, and taking off. He was at public theater with Joe Papp, and so just you know, he just sat on the script. I mean, the script sat on the shelf for years. And then what happened? Boys in the Hood became an international phenomenon, and all of a sudden, somebody was willing to make a movie like that. No, we didn't know anything about it. What happened was that Gerard was going to get a new agent. Uh, she wanted to see some work, and you know, he gave her a copy of Juice. And she read it, and she says, what are you doing with this? What was happening with this? And he's, Nothing. It's just been sitting there for years. She says, well, you, gotta, you should make this. So she took it, and she took it around, and automatically there were about four or five production companies that wanted to buy it. And, and then we started getting notes. We started getting notes from the company saying that it was too dark. They thought it should be more of a, more of a comedic coming-of-age story between these four guys, you know, to lighten up the tone, more one-liners. And Gerard and I are reading this, and we're saying, nah, man, come on. This is bull****. <laughs> you know. 
it's a pretty dark movie. Yeah, but I mean, but it. it it's, I mean, structurally, at the very least, there's a there's a there's some warm-hearted, coolie high stuff for the first half an hour or so, but you know, it's a noir film. Mm-hmm. Seeing it, is, it as a as a warm coming of age story would be a a very different <laughs> film. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was written as a film noir that could actually happen in Harlem. Was happening in Harlem at that time. Where the main characters were sixteen, seventeen year old guys, you know that was that was what we made it as, and that's what we wrote it as, and so um, we just said, nah, nah, this is turning into something we don't want our names on, and you know, there were movies that we were looking at that said, you know, that was a good idea, but I bet you it just got developed into a piece of, <laughs> and so we basically took the script back. We said, thank you, but no, we that's not what we we don't want to do that to this. And life goes on. And then one day I get a phone call um, from a young guy named David Heyman who was looking for the first film to produce, you know, him and, and some friends. And so he, he, he called me. He says, look, I, I read your script and um, I'm interested in talking to you. I want to see what kind of movie you want to make. So I met him, had brunch with him, talked for a couple of hours, told him this was a movie. It's a film noir. It's got to be real. It's got to be. It's not a studio film. It's got to be shot on the on the streets of Harlem. I said, there's, there's no young actors that we know of that can play these roles. So we got to get unknowns, you know, really fine new unknowns to play these roles. I talked for a couple of hours and he said, I like what you have to say about it. Do you want me to get funding for it? And I said, yeah. It's the 25th anniversary of Ernest Dickerson's film, Juice. It's just been re-released in a deluxe edition on Blu-ray. Let's take a listen to a scene from the movie, uh, which Ernest directed and co-wrote. So the four protagonists, this little gang, lowercase g. uh, The crew. The crew uh, are robbing a convenience store. And while they rob a convenience store, the character played by Tupac Bishop shoots the owner of the convenience store and he he didn't really need to uh you know this was the worst crime they'd ever done as a team yeah and uh everyone else is is kind of flipping out they've just run away and and we hear them just as they uh just as they run out yo man what the f- man what we gonna do now right here man we got to give it a f- gun yeah you're right man yo bishop man give me the peace no no the hell you mean no? You mean a gun? I mean, I'm holding on to this so I say so. I'm not playing. Oh, really? Hey, stop this! Don't man. Chill, man. Don't you stop this! I think it's telling that you describe the movie as a noir. Mm-hmm. Because I think a lot of movies like this are shot and presented relatively naturalistically even if the action is grand um the presentation is almost casual and i think the fact that this is like on the street in harlem you're shooting these buildings Mm -hmm. in these big angles everything feels like brick city yeah i mean everything feels like a a geometry problem you know what i mean (laughs) Uh, everything feels bound Mm-hmm. by these hard lines and the action is i mean the the characters watch white heat in the in the movie mm-hmm. and the action is kind of bound by these hard geometric lines and these really intense emotions 
um, that feel like very different from like what you would see in a in a similar movie set in L.A. Well, I mean, you know, in New York, you know, we live we were living when I lived in New York. We lived in it was a brick city. I grew up in in housing projects in Newark. You know, that's a brick city. Growing up in in vertical environments, living in in, in apartments. You know, walking through hallways, walking through alleyways. To me, there was yeah, I was definitely going for like a certain kind of expressionism. You know, yeah, no doubt about it. The the old German expressionist films, a lot of times, which were dealing with crimes in the city, were a big influence on us. And uh, when we saw something like Boys in the Hood. We were like, well, what are they so upset for? They got houses <laughs> with lawns. You know, they got palm trees in their yards. You know, they got real homes. They don't have, they're not living in little apartments. We, I just, we just couldn't, you know, relate to that environment because it was, it was 180 degrees from where we had grown up, where we are coming up and where we set our story. So, yeah, this, that is living in the city, life in the big city. And it, Looking at the film now, 25 years later, you realize what a, what a liminal place New York was in. Between the New York of the 1970s and 80s, the, that kind of bleakness and that turn to the sanitized Giuliani New York mm. aesthetics. Like, <laughs> it, was still, it was still a New York. On the one mm. hand, it feels almost recognizably modern. Mm-hmm. You know, it feels almost contemporary, but it's also still in New York where you're walking past a burned-out car. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's true. And some places up there are still like that in New York. Um, I just, I was sh- shooting in New York recently, and, and you know, there's some areas that haven't been gentrified that uh, still have that, Still had that feel. But um, that was the, you know, that was an environment that I knew that I spent most of my formative years in. You know, the whole jumping from rooftop to rooftop was something I used to do as a kid. Dumb, stupid stuff. You literally jump from rooftop to rooftop? Yeah. yeah, There's a scene where they're running from the cops and they they kind of act like they're going to turn themselves in and then they jump across a chasm about... Made me sick in my stomach just looking at it. Yeah, we used to do that, and there was one time when a friend of mine didn't make it and fell and got impaled on a fence. Some criticism I got for the film was that, well, we don't see the influence of the parents in these kids' lives. But it was definite. It was a definite decision to keep the parents really minimal because it was about the kids' lives after they leave the house. You know, whenever I left the house, my mother never knew the stuff I was getting into. And, you know, she would have been shocked at some of it. She never knew that I jumped from rooftop to rooftop. But, you know, and even when the film came out, I didn't tell her I got it from real life, you know. And my mom is in the film, too. She's a gun dealer in the movie, right? Yeah, she plays sweets, yeah. (laughs) Well, I don't even have time to get into your amazing TV work, including directing some of the most important episodes of The Wire and directing, being one of the... uh, most prolific directors on the most successful television show on TV, The Walking Dead. Um, but I am so grateful that you took the time to come here and talk to me. Thank you. I mean, if you ever want to do it again and do continuation, I'm, I'm, I'm up for it. I'm cool. Solid. Ernest Dickerson, <laughs> thank you so much for coming and being on Bullseye. Thank you for having me. I had a lot of fun. 
Every week on Bullseye, we like to wrap things up with a pop culture recommendation from me, your host. It's the outshot. I mean, it's about that laugh, right? <laughs> I think that's about 25. <laughs> that dumb, ridiculous, charming, amazing laughter. <laughs> That's car talk, right? Two brothers acting dumb and laughing. It's magic. <laughs> For 40 years, we could turn on the radio on a weekend morning and hear that laugh. Or I guess those laughs, but honestly, I could never tell which one was Tom and which one was Ray. Going to the grocery store or a Little League game or a garage sale, Saturdays at 10, Sundays at 9, whenever they came on where you live. It was always there. Whenever NPR started to feel pretentious or smug or humorless or whatever they say about NPR, there were Tom and Ray Maliazzi telling their dad jokes and laughing like fools. A couple had been debating the purchase of a new vehicle for weeks. He wanted a new truck. She wanted a fast little sports car so she could zip through traffic around town. Look, she said, I want something that goes from zero to 200 in four seconds or less. And my birthday's coming up. You could surprise me. For her birthday, he bought her a brand new bathroom scale. <laughs> 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 and it says, services will be at the Downing Funeral Home on Monday, the 18th. <laughs> Go zero to 204 seconds. <laughs> of course, I'm a radio producer, right? I can tell you why it works. Expertise is essential in talk radio. There's a reason that Mike Lupica never admits not knowing something about sports. There's a reason Lynn Rosetto Casper can make a recipe out of anything that's in your fridge. There's a reason Dr. Laura isn't just Laura. The Maliazzi's, click and clack the Tappet brothers, they were real experts. These two yahoos laughing uproariously at their own dumb jokes had genuine genius. They went to MIT. They actually owned a garage. They actually helped people with their cars on the air. A clown once told me, and I know that that is a weird setup, but it's real. A clown once told me that to be funny, you have to demonstrate mastery. On Car Talk, it's not a funny show if they're getting the car stuff wrong, but they get it right, and it's perfect. All right, give it to us, give it to us again, though. As you're shifting from what to what, what happens where? Right before I shift into, like, second, there'll be this humming noise it sounds like it's coming from my glove compartment. Yeah, and once you've shifted into second... Then it, it goes away. goes away. <laughs> what, you, what you have, Sandy, is a sympathetic vibration someplace, and you can oh, actually... isn't that nice? <laughs> it is. It's it kind of sweet, actually. Yeah, you like you can reproduce this without even moving the truck. Sit there with the thing in neutral mm -hmm. and step on the gas and try to figure out at what engine speed you hear the noise. Uh -huh. Okay, and, and bring it up to that engine speed and try to hold it there. Uh -huh. And I bet you're going to get the same vibration. And I'm going to guess that it's coming not from the glove compartment, although it might be, but it might be coming from part of the exhaust system, maybe a heat shield on the exhaust. Uh -huh. And if it isn't that, I think it's probably the choke pull-off. <laughs> <laughs> and while Tom and Ray were uncommon geniuses of broadcasting, and, and I think also just in general, they also had a brilliant producer. 
Doug Berman started with them in Cambridge when they were a local show, and he buffed car talk to a fine sheen. Everything was tucked in at the corners, edited tautly, managed for maximum impact. And like a great stand-up act, the show never seemed anything less than completely spontaneous. I think that most of the folks who called in for car advice were shocked that they weren't actually listening live. Hello, you're on Car Talk. This is Maximilian. Oh, of course. Maximilian. Max. Max. We'll call yeah. you Max for short. Where are you from, Max? Max, I'm from Valencia, California. Yes. And I'm listening to your program. I enjoy it so much. And I feel you two brothers are real mensch. <laughs> not, not, on, not only this, you know, your, your audience are so funny. And I yeah. have a problem, and I thought uh, maybe I'll give you a call and... You might solve the problem, man. What right. did you say about the stench? I didn't, I didn't get all that. <laughs> now, look, I'm a professional humorist. Like half my best friends are professional comedians. I should be immune to guys reading email forwards on the radio. But Car Talk isn't about great jokes. It's about two warm, open hearts, just kindness and generosity pouring out of your speakers. Some genuine expertise about cars and the incredible power of laughing at your own jokes. This fall, Car Talk is leaving us, and I'll miss it. That's my outshot. <laughs> well, it's happened again. You've wasted another perfectly good hour listening to Car Talk. <laughs> That's all for this week's Bullseye. Bullseye is recorded at MaximumFun.org headquarters overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California. Today in the park, we had a flyover from some fighter jets, and we briefly thought that we were under attack by, I don't know, I guess maybe the Russians? Hard to say exactly who it would be, but it was terrifying. Turns out they were just practicing for doing something for Independence Day at Dodger Stadium. So, shout out to fighter jets. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Thanks to the fine folks at Digital One in Portland for helping out with our Beth Ditto interview. And thanks to Maximum Fund's own Daniel Baruella for engineering that. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He had help from Christian Duenas. Production fellows at MaximumFun.org are Kara Hart and Nick Liao. Our senior producer at MaxFun is Laura Swisher. All our interstitial music is provided to us by the one and only DJW, a.k.a. Dan Wally. Our theme, recorded by the Go Team, provided to us by them and by their label, Memphis Industries. Our thanks go to them. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, all of them are free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. And while you're at it, check out the Bullseye page on Facebook. Facebook.com slash Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. We're sharing interviews. We're giving you sneak previews about upcoming Bullseye guests. Today, I posted an article about things that are on sale both on the Gwyneth Paltrow website, Goop, and on the Alex Jones website, Infowars, including some kind of silver spray that you spray into the air. Don't know what it means. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. 